0: Um, okay, so this is the LIC Reading Series. Hooray. Let's first, before I do anything, <laughs> applaud. <laughs> uh, okay. Hi, this is Katherine Lasota, host of the LIC Reading Series. LIC Reading Series is a monthly program in Long Island City, Queens, New York. We started the series in April 2015 in a cozy little carriage house of a hundred-year-old neighborhood pub named LIC Bar. And over the years, we've been recording some of our events with the idea that we'd start a podcast series. And well, here you go. Here's our first episode. As we put episodes out into the world, we're going to hop around in time a little bit. This episode features Nana Kwame Brenya, Hannah Lilith Asadi, and Keith Gesson. And it was recorded on December 11, 2018. We're starting here because all three of the featured books at this event were so good, yet so different. Much like, say, the many cuisines you can find in Queens, which is the most diverse county in the United States. As you listen, you might get the idea that we are very proud of Queens. And, well, we are. It's a borough full of writers and readers, yet it gets considerably less literary attention than its neighbor to the south, Brooklyn. So, to get us all centered, I ask each of our readers to tell a little anecdote about Queens, and they interpret that however they see fit. In the live reading series, the night is split into two parts, and so is our podcast. In this show, you'll hear the readings, and in our next episode, you'll hear the Q&A with me, the authors, and our live audience. So let's jump back into the LSE bar, where I'm on stage introducing our first reader, Keith Gessen. And if you listen closely, you might just hear that crackling fireplace in the corner of that cozy little carriage house. Keith Gessen was born in Moscow and grew up outside of Boston. He's founding editor of N Plus One and a contributor to the London Review of Books and The New Yorker. He's translated Svetlana Aleksevich and Lyudmila Petrushevskaya from Russian and is the author of the novels All the Sad Young Literary Men and A Terrible Country, which is this beautiful book up here and available from the Storybook Shop. Um, I want to tell you a couple lovely things that some reviewers have said about Terrible Country. New York Times says that Gessen evokes not only convincingly but indispensably something exceedingly rare in modern American fiction genuine male vulnerability thank you keith um and the washington independent review of books says with its humor empathic characterization and great timing this book is a hell of an important read let's give a hell of a warm applause to keith gesson um
1: so thank you for introducing me all that. Um, and thank you for inviting me to, to read with these wonderful authors. Um, my anecdote about Queens, I uh, oh, I, when I first moved, to, it's not much, it's kind of more of a, a fable. Um, <laughs> when I first moved to New York, I lived in Queens. I lived in Woodside for a year. And, um, and I wanted to become a writer, but I didn't really know how. And I spent a lot of time, I uh, had a typewriter, because um, that's what I thought writers wrote on. And um, that was my first mistake. And then, um, and I would go to uh, readings like this one, and I would be full of uh, resentment uh, and contempt. Um, and that was not useful. And um, in retrospect, what I should have done is uh, get a job and uh, make some money because it was 1998, and you could still maybe buy an apartment in New York. So if I could go back in time, uh, that's what I would have done. Um, Yes, that's my story about Queens. Okay, Um, so I've never actually, uh, I've never read this part from my book, um, but I thought I would try it tonight. Has anybody here spent some time in grad school? Okay, okay, all right, okay, good, good. It's not too late. It's not too late, you can, always, you can always go back to grad school. Um, so uh, the book is about a guy who goes to Moscow to take care of his grandmother. Um, and one of the reasons he kind of has to go there is his academic career is not working out. And um, not unlike the author of this book, he is full of, of resentment. Um, so uh, here's, here's, his, uh, here's a chapter about that. You had to be fundamentally stupid I sometimes thought, to become the sort of academic specialist that hiring committees liked. You had to be thick somehow. You had to block out all the other things in the world to focus on one narrow, particular thing. And how, without knowing all the other things out there, could you possibly choose? I was enjoying this thought one day while walking to the coffee grind. It wasn't the only time in the day that I had to think, but it was the most concentrated. I always walked past the little grocery store where I got my sushki, and then I was on creepy deserted by Lubyanka. I had no choice but to think. If I looked at my classmates, the ones who started at the same time as I did, what was the difference between them and me? It wasn't that they were actually stupid. Most of them were smart, and some were quite a bit smarter than I was. That wasn't the difference, though. The difference was their willingness to stick with something. The successful ones were like put-bills. they were like pit bulls who had sunk their teeth into a topic and wouldn't let go until someone shot them or they had tenure, uh, whichever, came, whichever came first. Um, To the ongoing frustration of my advisor, I was not doing that. Pretend I'm a hiring committee, he said once. What is your pitch to me? My pitch is that I love this stuff. I love Russian history and literature and I love talking about it to people. Okay, but a university is also a place for research. What's your specialty? I had been through this with him before. Modernity, I said, knowing already that he wasn't going to like it. I'm a specialist in modernity my advisor a six foot four former basketball player from iowa did a very very girly imitation of my voice i'm a specialist in modernity he said i study the ways in which modernity affects the russian mind i waited i waited for him to finish i'm a specialist in my own butt yelled my advisor that's not what got me this job what's wrong with modernity i asked it covers three centuries. It's not a specialization. Three years is a specialization, or better yet, three months, three days. If you were a specialist in like Tuesday through Thursday of the first week of February 1904, but also in total command of Russian modernism, I could get you a job anywhere you wanted. <laughs> I didn't say anything. I mean, look at the writers you've studied. We were in my advisor's tiny office, the two printed out sheets of my CV lying on his desk between us. Despite his unorthodox advising methods, he was a good guy. He said he'd gotten serious about studying Russia after he realized he wasn't going to the NBA. It took me a long time to realize that, he said, because I am dumb. <laughs> he, he was a great teacher, a truly inspired teacher, but his own academic career had not gone smoothly. He wanted me to avoid his mistakes. Who is Petrushkin, he asked now, looking at the description of my dissertation. Grigory Petrushkin was a early 19th century poet. He hadn't actually written very many poems, nor were the poems he wrote very good. But I wanted someone from that era who wasn't Pushkin. Although, Petrushkin knew Pushkin. Petrushkin was a friend of Pushkin's, I said now. A friend? He sort of knew Pushkin. And does this mean you can teach Pushkin? I don't know. Because there's no course on Petrushkin. (laughs) I just didn't want to write about the usual suspects. I thought, I sort of trailed off. Look, he said, do you think I want to be studying the architecture of early Russian huts? In his once- (laughs) In his one smart, academic move, my advisor had developed a theory that medieval Russian huts lacked chimneys. They discovered chimneys some 200 years after Western European peasants, and this gave early Russian peasants brain damage, which explains why they didn't develop some of the farming strategies that radically increased crop yields in early modern Europe, and it helped bring about the Renaissance. By the way, that's a real theory in Russian studies. Um, <clears throat> My advisor said, do you think I want it to become another of these people who come up with a monocause for Russian backwardness? No, dude, I want it to be Isaiah Berlin. I know I'm not Isaiah Berlin, I said. I know, okay, I'm just saying, I know you love teaching, that's a good thing, but in order to teach, you need a teaching job, yes? And right now, at this point in time, that means finding a topic that's going to appeal to a hiring committee. Back in July, he was very excited when I told him I was going to Russia. This is great, he said. You'll be on the ground. You can find something new and original, or something old. It was my advisor who suggested I interview my grandmother. She'll tell you stories about the USSR. You can weave them in and out of a tale of modernity. That shit is gold, my friend. People love that shit. (laughs) Hiring committees love it, I said. Yes. Who did you think I meant when I said people? (laughs) Um, Now that was out. If I couldn't, uh, it's out because his grandmother can't remember anything, so he comes to her to ask her about her life, and she can't remember. Now that was out. If I couldn't use my grandmother's stories, which she didn't remember, I would have to think of something else. But what? I really had no idea. People like Alex Fishman made their careers repackaging Russian dictatorship. Gulag, said Fishman. Then internet, and granting institutions swooned. (laughs) He was now doing an online history of the gulag. People loved reading about the Soviet gulag. It made them feel better about the US of A. (laughs) Of course, it wasn't like Russia was now a flourishing democracy, but it was complicated. Back in Brooklyn on the internet, and now in my grandmother's kitchen on Echamaskui, all I heard about was what a dangerous place Russia was, what a bloody tyrant Putin had become. And it was, and he was, but I had half expected to be arrested at the airport. I thought I'd be robbed on the train, in fact, the only thing I was in danger of being arrested for was accidentally buying too many cappuccinos at the coffee grind and not having enough cash on me to pay. They did not take credit cards. The only robbery going on was the price of croissants on Sretchenko. The country had become rich. Not everyone was rich. My grandmother wasn't rich, and in fact, speaking of robbery, she had been robbed in certain things. But overall, generally speaking, a lot of people, especially in Moscow, were pretty well off. Looking out the window, it was, it was hard to square all the talk of bloody dictatorship with all the people in expensive suits getting into Audis, talking on their cell phones. Was this naive? Didn't people in Saudi Arabia drive fancy cars and talk on cell phones in between chopping off the heads of dissidents? Yes, maybe. I don't know. I'd never been to Saudi Arabia. For me, and not just for me, I think, Soviet oppression and Soviet poverty had always been inextricably intertwined. Not everyone was happy about the new conditions. The liberals on ECHO... Complained about press censorship and the marginalization of opposition politicians. Sometimes they held small protests to express their anger at the regime, and there were also occasional local issue-oriented protests, for example, against the building of a mall in Pushkin Square. Most of these were tolerated, but some were violently dispersed, and my grandmother had apparently seen such a dispersal because every time we walked past a larger-than-usual group of people, whether waiting in line or watching a juggler perform, and especially if there were police nearby, she would say, let's get out of here, it's a protest. The police are very harsh toward protesters and pull us in the opposite direction. Nonetheless, she remained very curious about the news, and every time she found me in the kitchen with the radio on or or the Moscow Times in front of me, she started asking questions. What are they saying, she'd say. About what? You know, about the situation. What's the situation? What was the situation? I couldn't tell it was some kind of modern authoritarianism or authoritarian modernization or something. I tried to keep her up on the latest, and she gamely nodded her head. Thank you.
0: Yeah, let's keep it going for Keith. Thank you. A second reader this evening. Is Hannah Lilith Asadi. Hannah was raised in Arizona and now lives in Brooklyn. Look at all these Brooklyn people coming to Queens. Thanks, guys. <laughs> We're the best. Okay. She received her MFA in fiction from the Columbia University School of the Arts. Her first novel, Sonora, uh, published by Soho in of last year, in last year, 2017. It's also right here. I will show you. Oh, wait, I have to point something out, first of all. We have a really special kind of representation of the National Book Foundation here tonight in that um, we have two current year five under 35 honorees. And also, we started with the old guy in the middle who's no longer under 35. But at one point, which which year were you an honoree? Many years ago. ago, (laughs) Keith Gessen was also a 535, and I'm just like, wow, you got a sticker on your book here. Do you see that? It's like shiny. It says 535. It's nice. So is this cover, this covers is like, I love the watercolor feel of it. I mean, we could just talk about covers on it. But okay, but this is a great book. The book received the Rosenthal Family Foundation Award in Literature from the American Academy of Arts and Letters and was a finalist for the Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for debut fiction and, as I mentioned, National Book Foundation 535 honoree this year. Her second novel, The Stars Are Not Yet Bells, is forthcoming from Riverhead. And you're missing the Riverhead party tonight to be with us. Well, we'll see how much fun you have here tonight, you might say. Uh, <laughs> It's really, it's beautifully written. It, it, it captures, it's like the descriptions of place. It takes place in Arizona. It's in New York. Publishers Weekly says, Asadi's lyrical prose nicely complements these preoccupations with the unreal or the ungraspable. The structure moving back and forth in time and space adds a sense of the magical to a sometimes tragic, but always beautiful coming of age story. And Kirkus Reviews calls it lyrical raw and moving and i'm sure you'll agree that hannah herself is lyrical raw and moving let's give it up for hannah lilithasadi okay <laughs>
2: okay um so i'm gonna do this very unpopular thing tonight uh which is read from the end of the book partly inspired by nana who read from the end of his book at, and i'm gonna get oh, it's related okay. it's related okay. The end of the book is related to the Queen's Anecdote. So, And partly is that um, I've read from this book so many times I've never gotten to read from the end. It's a very rare thing to be able to do. So I wanted to do that tonight. And then with the next book coming out, I don't know that I'll have another opportunity. So now related to the Queen's Anecdote, um, this book got rejected many times. It was a difficult book to publish for whatever, a variety of reasons. Uh, It wasn't my decision that was the case. But um, one of the last times, I had almost given up thinking it wasn't going to get published. And I went to the Rockaways, which is Queens, to the ocean with my manuscript, and I did this final edit. And as I was done, this whale jumped out of the water. So... And, and so at the end of this book, there's a, there's a scene about a whale, kind of. So that's also why I'm reading the end. So it's related to Queens. There you are. Um, I'm obviously not going to give you enough context. This is just a very poetic end scene. It's the end. Um, the only thing I will say is that the book goes back and forth in time, and then the part that I'm gonna read, it's the narrator's last days in New York. And then the present tense scene at the very end is the she and her family going to the sea in Mexico, in Sonora, Mexico. Okay, here we go. On my last day in New York, the sirens would not stop. The helicopters were searching for someone, something overhead. But there was no intercom, no principle that could personalize the calamity around me. I packed my snow blast. It held the old Manhattan skyline. And I looked out at it, the view beyond me of the city, the void of towers, of the view of New York then and that little glass ball and the view of it now. That even in those two visions, there was the coincidence of missing. It was still raining. I stood beneath the above ground awning waiting for the train. I looked out at the canal, the still canal. New York had already changed shape. It had changed its smell. It was already a foreign city to me. I was among strangers. There were five of us there, crowded beneath the tiny awning, waiting for the rain to pass, waiting for the train to come. I was intent on holding the scene when a beautiful stranger approached me. I know you, he said. I didn't remember him. I'd remember such a nice face. Don't you remember me? He asked. It was years ago at a party where we met, but I know I know you. I faded out. I was for a moment. My father t- tapping on his cigarette the way he holds it, crushing it flat. I was my mother at the sink staring into the desert from the kitchen window, dishes in hand. I was in all the beds I'd ever slept in, me sinking into the sheets, letting my thoughts fall down. I was running alongside the ocean, Laura splashing me with water. I was dancing to a melody I did not recognize, spinning wild and lovely into exalted leaps. I was no one again. I was someone with no name, no past. My face resumed the freshness of birth. The brightness was again in my eyes. The brightness only children own before life begins its wreckage. The gray light surrounded us. It allowed all other colors, the colors of our jackets and our shoes and our and our umbrellas, their true brilliance. It was not all a dream. This must be my version of awaiting the Messiah, watching the rain, finding cover. And now we move to the desert, or, or the sea. <laughs> we have driven through the desert all the way to its end. The sawaros are replaced by sand dunes. We have arrived at the sea. It is morning. We walk the stretch of the beach, the autumnal wind, like May in our hair. My father says he feels no pain, no pain at all. It's the sea, he says, the curse has gone. With us walk a trumpeter, an accordion player, a guitarist, two small girls with tambourines. They play a cheerful song, one made for pina coladas and first love. When they finish, they play it again. Before it is all over. I ask at last why Laura went by another name. She hated the the desert. She hated it ever since she was a girl. She always wanted to live by the ocean, her father says, and walks on. We follow him to the water. He is wearing a sombrero to shield the sun. We do not exchange a word or a gesture. He climbs a wall of rocks that juts out into the sea. We stand on the sand below him in a triangle. My father prays. The sea rushes up to us. Her father kneels and unclasp, unclaps the urn, unclaps the urn. Above the waves, she falls, graceful as snow. My sister, my sonora. We stay through the dusk. The music does not stop. The players gather, depart walk a stretch to another group of players, and play again. There are children swimming in the sea. The tide stretches farther and farther away from us. I feel a burning spread across my chest, and for a moment believe my skin sprouts lightning tracks. I hear Sonora's voice inside me one last time. I think of the stranger in the rain, the one I knew, the one I once met. I wish he could be beside me now, far away as I am. Venus burns hot and bright amid a parade of stars whose names I do not know. A wave rises lost in the black so- sky, so large it might be a whale, and then rakes long before shore. This is it, this is how I always saw heaven, always by the sea, always by night, always in the dark. Thank you.
0: That was beautiful. More applause for Hannah. Should we introduce the third reader? I don't know. I don't know if you guys want to hear this guy read. and None of you are here to hear this guy read. Anything. Um, all right. Our third reader... Is Nana Kwame Ajay brenya All right, let's see here. Uh, Nana has an MFA from Syracuse University. His work has appeared, or is for? (laughs) Did you just say wow about yourself?
3: I said mob, it's a cute (laughs) smile. Gang. I don't. What's happening?
0: (laughs) Oh, do you like have a gang? Is there like a secret handshake? You can't talk about it. All right, well, later. Maybe I'll get it out of you in the panel discussion. Okay.
2: <laughs> I didn't know.
0: His work has appeared or is forthcoming in numerous publications, including Esquire, Guernica, Printer's Row, and The Breakwater Review, where ZZ Packer awarded him the Breakwater Review Fiction Prize. He was selected by Colson Whitehead for the National Book Foundation's 535 Award. He lives in Syracuse. Did you come down from Syracuse for this? Oh no, you came down from Syracuse for this. That's really sweet. <laughs> Gorge. Gorge. Friday Black is his first book and it's here and it's amazing. And ooh, you should buy it. Um all right. I'm gonna just tell you some amazing things that some people have said. The Guardian says it's a startling debut short story collection that's both funny and frightening. Tommy Orange, uh, who wrote an amazing book called There, There that came out this year, wrote in New York Times Review that Friday Black is an unbelievable debut, one that announces a new and necessary American voice. And I'm going to read this because I also agree. He says, this is a dystopian story collection as full of violence as it is of heart. To achieve such an honest pairing of gore with tenderness is no small feat. And I will say that I feel like reading the first story is like um getting a knife stuck in your heart and twisted real hard while you have your eyes forced open to make you look and just like get through the story and 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 be changed and then you can read the rest of this amazing collection it's like a gateway to this amazing collection so let's just give it up for nana
3: thank you guys so much um Maybe it's um, apt to have another big hand for our amazing hosts. You know, thank you. I like that knife thing. That was cool. Um, and of course, um, you know, huge hand for these incredible writers that preceded me. I hate. I feel really bad for whoever's going after those two. So, <laughs> oh wait. Um, the anecdote from Queens. I was gonna just say, you know, I was born in Queens, so I had an easy one. Um, that's it. No, I was born in Corona. <laughs> that's that's what I thought, right? I get that box? Let's get the whole thing and the questions. Um, I was, uh, yeah, in the Left Rack, I don't know if people know Left Rack City, those Left Rack buildings. And, um, you know, I was trying to think of what else I could say about that. And so I asked my dad, uh, you know, dad, I have to go do a reading in Queens. And so I, they want me to talk about it. And he, was, and he was, I was just on the phone. He was like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm very tired. <laughs> And I was like, no, okay. <laughs> but um, I want to, uh, like, tell me about how I was born. I've never done this before. I never asked him about it. I just, I guess, wasn't interested. <laughs> and um, he was like, well, you know, uh, it was time. And I got the car, and we drove to uh, Flushing Hospital. You know, I drove both you and your older sister, only owning owning my little sister, only your little sister do we, have to use an ambulance, I, I drove her. And then we got there and brought her to the hospital, brought her to the place, and I'm just like, so what was mom doing this whole time? And he's like, you know, she was just screaming, but you know, I tried to be cool, I was cool about it. And I was like, it seems like you're kind of centering yourself a little on this story. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm like, I, <laughs> And he's like, well, I mean, I'm the one who's doing all the work. Um, and yes, I was born in um, Flushing, and I lived in Corona. And so yeah, that was, that's my Queens anecdote. So I win that contest, I guess. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I really like events where alcohol is readily available to the audience. I don't know why, my stuff just goes off better like that. So, <laughs> um, I'm gonna read from uh, the titular story. I discovered that word at a conference and now I say it because I think it makes me sound smart. <laughs> titular. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Friday Black, guys. Is my book, um, and so uh, it takes place in a mall, as you might imagine, on Black Friday. I worked retail for several years, and if you guys have, you know, I'm right there in solidarity with you. I'm sorry, uh, but I guess you know I did kind of get something out of it uh, with this book, and so, um, and yeah, this is my first book, and so and this is like kind of like my last stop and this kind of the first my first ever kind of like tour type thing. So thank you guys for being here because it's kind of been crazy. For me, you know, prior to this year I could count on one hand the number of times I've been on a plane and now it's like, you know, they know me at the place at so the airport. Like <laughs> I'm like, You know me, so like stop patting me down so hard. Um So this story's called um <laughs> this story's called Friday Black and it's about Black Friday and I actually think maybe it's a little understated. <clears throat> Get to your sections Angela screams. Ravenous humans howl. Our gate whines and rattles as they shake and pull their grubby fingers like worms through the grating. I sit atop a tiny cabin roof made of hard plastic. My legs hang near the windows and fleeces hang inside of it. I hold my reach, an eight-foot long metal pole with a small plastic mouth at the end for grabbing hangers off the highest racks. I also use my reach to smack down Friday heads. It's my fourth Black Friday On my first, a man from Connecticut bit a hole into my tricep His slobber, hot I left the sales floor for ten minutes so they could patch me up Now I have a jagged smile on my left arm A sickle, half circle My lucky Friday scar I hear Richard's shoes flopping toward me You ready, big guy? He asks I open one eye and look at him I've never not been ready, so I don't say anything and close my eyes again. I get it. I get it. I have the tiger. I like it, Richard says. I nod slowly. He's nervous. He's a district manager, and this is the prominent mall. We're the biggest store in his territory. We're supposed to do a million over the next 30 days. Most of it's on me. The main gate creaks and groans. I saw the super shells in the back. What'd she wear? Medium or large? Large, I say, opening both eyes. There's a contest. Whoever has the most sales gets to take home any coat in the store. When Richard asked me what I was going to do if I won, I told him that when I won, I was going to give one of the Super Shell Parkers to my mother. Richard frowned but said that was honorable. I said, yeah, it was. <laughs> the Super Shells are the most expensive coats we have this season. Downfill filled lofted exterior with a water-repellent finish, zip vents to keep the thing breathable, elastic hem plus faux fur on the hood for a luxurious touch. I know Richard would have me choose literally anything else. That's half of why I chose it. I set it aside in the back. It's the only large we've got due to a shipment glitch. Nobody will touch it because I'm me. Most of the Friday heads are here for the pole face stuff. And whose name is lined up with the pole face section in the daily breakdown each day this weekend? It's not Lance or Michelle, that's for sure. It's not the new kid duo either. I look across to Denim, where duo's pacing back and forth, making sure his piles are neat and folded. He's a pretty good kid. Sometimes he'll actually ask to help with shipments. He wears a t-shirt and skinny jeans like most of our customers his age. Angela tells him to watch me, to learn from me. She says he's my heir, apparent. I like him, but he's not like me. He can sound honest. He knows how to see what people want, but he can't do what I can do. Not on Black Friday, but he'll survive denim. Michelle and Lance cover shoes and graphic tees. Michelle and Lance might as well be anybody else. Lance is working the broom. There's a grind and a metallic rumble. Angela is in the front. She's pushed the button and turned the key. The main gate eats itself as it rolls into the ceiling. Get out of here, I yell to Richard. He runs to the register where he'll be back up to the backup, safe. Maybe 80 people rush through the gate, clawing and stampeding, pushing racks and bodies aside. Have you ever seen people run from a fire or gunshots? It's like that with less fear and more hunger. From my cabin I see a child, a girl maybe six years old, disappear as the wave of consumer fervor swallows her up. She is sprawled face down with dirty shoe prints on her pink coat. Lance walks up to the small pink body. He's pulling a pallet jack and holding a huge push broom. He thrusts the broom head into her side and tries to sweep her onto the pallet jack so we can roll her to the section we've designated for bodies. <laughs> As he touches her, a woman wearing a gray scarf pushes him away and yanks the girl to her feet. I imagine the mother explaining that her tiny daughter isn't dead yet. She pulls the little girl toward me. The girl limps and tries to keep up, and then I have to forget about them. Blue sun, sleek puck. A man with wild eyes and a bubble vest screams as he grabs my left ankle. White foam drips from his mouth. I use my right foot to stomp his hand, and I feel his fingers crush beneath my boots. He howls, sleek puck, sun, while licking his injured hand. I look him in the eyes, deep red around the lids, red at the corners. I understand him perfectly. What he's saying is this. My son loves me most on Christmas. I have him holidays. Me and him wants the one thing, only thing his mother won't on me. Need to feel like father. <laughs> Ever since the first time since the bite, I can speak Black Friday. Or I can un- understand it at least. Not fluently, but well enough. I have some of them in me. I hear the people, the sizes, the model, the make, and the reason, even if all they're doing is foaming at the mouth. I use my reach and pull a medium-sized blue sleek pack pole face from a face-out rack way up on the wall. Thanks. He growls. I'm gonna throw the jack in his face. Thank you, guys.
0: Today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend or leave a review wherever you found us. Special thanks to LIC Bar, the Astoria Bookshop, and our amazing intern, Nadine Santoro. A shout out to our sponsors over the years LIC Corner Cafe, Sweet Leaf Coffee, Court Square Diner, and the Gantry Restaurant. This episode was recorded by Carl Jacob and mixed and edited by Craig Ely. Our theme music is by Pat Irwin. The LIC reading series is made possible in part by the Queen's Council on the Arts with public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. I'm your host, Katherine Lasota. See you next time in Queens.